0: On September 11th, 2001, our American way of life was attacked. Everyone remembers where they were that day and how their lives changed from that moment on. The American Legion is committed to honoring the memories of those we lost on 9-11 and in the global war on terrorism that followed. As part of that commitment, the American Legion Tango Alpha Lima podcast presents a special series, 9-11-20-2020. 20 episodes in the 20 days leading up to the 20th anniversary of the attacks that changed the world. Each of the 20 guests delivers a unique first-hand perspective on 9-11 and our nation's response. Here is one of those remarkable stories. All right, as we continue on with our 20 podcasts in 20 days, about the 20th anniversary of September 11th, we're joined today by Lieutenant Colonel Darling. He's a public speaker on crisis leadership and decision making, and he retired from the Marine Corps in 2007 with just over 20 years of active duty service, piloting attack helicopters in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and as a presidential pilot with Marine Helicopter Squadron 1. In October 2000, he was chosen to work for the White House Military Office, Airlift Operations Department. It was in this position that during the attack on September 11, 2001, he supported the President, Vice President, and National Security Advisor in the underground President's Emergency Operations Center, PEOC, and witnessed unprecedented leadership and decision-making at the highest levels of government. Lieutenant Colonel Darling chronicles the crisis leadership and decision-making he witnessed in his book, 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker, 9 one the White House. Darling is president and CEO of Turning Point Crisis Management USA, a crisis leadership training and technology company located in Stafford, Virginia. <laughs> Colonel, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate your time. Mark, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Right. Sure. Let's uh let's not delay it any longer. Tell us uh tell us about your 9/11 experience and the, sort of the unique viewpoint you had on everything that went down that day.
1: Yes, as you read in my bio, I flew attack helicopters in the Marine Corps, 1998 selected to fly for President Clinton with Marine Helicopter Squadron 1. And then like you said, in October of 2000, I was asked to go be part of the White House military office. Our job in airlift operations was to move presidential equipment in advance of our president worldwide. So whether he's going Japan, Korea, and then China, we have 500 people on all those assets, helicopter, snipers, doctors, and limousines, everything you can imagine the president needs. September 11, 2001, I was the airlift operations officer in charge of the president's logistics package in Sarasota, Florida. We moved it all in, and we were monitoring his trip, and the minute he was supposed to be wheels up, about 1,300, 1 o'clock, uh, we are going to roll in and pick all that equipment up when everything changed. I'm working, like you said, in airlift operations. We're on the fourth floor of the Eisenhower Executive Office Building. When someone came running in at 845 and said, quick, turn on CNN, apparently a small airplane struck the North Tower of the World Trade Center complex. Like all your listeners out there, Mark, everybody ran to a TV set. We turned it on. We're looking at that hole in the building going, that's a pretty big hole for a Cessna. There's got to be a lot more of this story than we know. 903, in front of God and country, we saw United Airlines Flight 175 careen into the South Tower at what looked like full power to me. My boss was an Air Force, full bird colonel, ran into airlift operations, and everybody stopped what you're doing, eyeballs on me. We have a full-blown terrorist event unfolding right before our eyes in the city of New York. Stand by for a lot of White House designated missions. What does that mean? Whenever we have a national tragedy, all these government agencies want to be there. They all play some sort of role in its recovery. But they end up calling the Pentagon. And the Pentagon puts them into a queue because no one government agency is more important than the other. But if you call the White House and the White House says go, say you're the FEMA, Federal Emergency Management Agency, you'll be number one in a 1 Alpha 1 status, which is the highest priority status there is. And we get your people where the White House wants you to be. So now, all these government agencies are calling in when all of a sudden, at 9.30, an airliner overflew the White House. Literally, we froze right there in our, our tracks. Somebody ran to a window and goes, holy mackerel, I just saw a big white jet in a hard left-hand turn heading west. Breaking news, fire and explosion over the Pentagon. Pentagon was just struck by American Airlines Flight 77. Departed out of Dallas, Virginia, 30 miles to the west. As far as Ohio, hijacked right back to Washington, D.C., hits the Pentagon at 937. We don't just have attack on New York. We have an attack on the northeast quadrant of the United States. Everything all of a sudden uh, greatly changed from that point.
0: Yeah, so at, at that point, did they relocate? I mean, you had to have relocated to the bunker at some point. So how did the rest of the day Unfold.
1: Yeah, as you can imagine, things were happening. 9:45, second time in American history, all loudspeakers bled, uh, bled the loudspeakers blared, blared to life. Evacuate the White House. Evacuate the Eisenhower Executive Office Building. Everyone, secure your classified information and move to the alternate site. That colonel came in, said, "You heard it. Shut it down. We're out of here. We got to go." I grabbed him. I said, "Sir, I, I can't leave. President Bush is not coming back to Washington D.C. Wherever they're going to take him today." He needs snipers, doctors, limousines, helicopters, and phones. I need to go somewhere to do that. He said, I want you to go across the street, go underground, go inside the president's bunker, known as the president's emergency operations center. Do logistics from there. The rest of us are out of here. By the way, um, last time the White House was ordered evacuated, February of 1814, during the War of 1812, when the British were burning down Washington, D.C. Here it is, 187 years later. We're evacuating the White House for the second time in American history. Yeah. I, th- I think
0: I knew that that was the last time, but it's, that's crazy to think about that. So at what point did the president make it back?
1: So as you said, so I showed my credentials. Secret Service let me in. Before long, I'm deep underground. I can't tell you how deep. can't tell you how to get there, how thick the walls are, how, how big the door is. But I can tell you it's a door that you and I don't pull on. It's a bank vault on steroids, right? I picked up the phone. I request permission to enter. Next thing you know, door opens, door closes. You're in somewhere special. The President's Emergency Operations Center. It's run by the White House Military Office. Prior to 9-11, the staffers upstairs in the West Wing didn't even know it existed. And all of a sudden, now it's going to become the main hub of operations. I walked in there. The first person I saw was a mill aide for Vice President Cheney, military aide. Good friend of mine. I said, hey, Tom, I'm here to do logistics. I'll stay out of your way. He said, Bob, answer the phones. They're ringing off the hook. So naturally, I put my logistics package down. I run over, and here it is, 9.52. I can hear the phone ringing. I picked up the phone. It's a direct line to the Situation Room in the West Wing. They're now funneling all information underground, coming into my console, my phone. The person on the other end says, Major, we have another hijacked aircraft 16 miles south of Pittsburgh, inbound, Washington, D.C., As you can imagine, Mark, I covered the receiver, I turned to my right, I'm like, whoa, you're gonna have to hold on. I wanted to pass it to the military aide. Who's standing next to me but Vice President Cheney. Behind him was his wife, Lynn. Here comes Dr. Rice, our National Security Advisor, her deputy, Stephen Hadley, Norman Mineta, the Secretary of Transportation. Everyone who was upstairs is now evacuated into the bunker complex. Come over to my console to hear about this new phone call regarding Flight 93. I snapped too. Sir, Situation room report, 16 miles south of Pittsburgh, we have another one coming at us. He immediately turned away from me, up on the wall down there, Mark, are these three black boxes. They're landlines, they're speaker boxes. He can be patched through to whoever he needs to talk to. The first person he requested was the supervisor for the FAA, the Herndon Virginia Command Center. His name was Rick. He immediately came up in the network, said, Mr. Vice President, that aircraft is not talking, squawking. Air uh, air traffic control has got no airspeed, altitude or direction on it. It's way off course. That's a hijacked aircraft. He then went to the second speaker box. He's looking for the other member of our national command authority who can give our pilots offensive authorization to defend America. The president is now in the classroom trying to get airborne. Donald Rumsfeld, our secretary of defense, rather than be over in the national military command center at the Pentagon, was in the parking lot assisting with the evacuation of burn victims as a result of the impact of Flight 77. We have nobody at the helm right now of our National Military Command and Control structure. All of a sudden, Vice President Cheney orders this one-star general. General, I want two F-15s. I want them at an Otis Air National Guard base up there in Cape Cod. Let me know when they're airborne. Stand by to shoot this aircraft down. As you can imagine, everybody took a step back. I turned, I just looked at the vice president. My 14 years in the Marine Corps up to that point said, my job was options for the president. We just unleashed the United States Air Force to take lethal action against a civilian airliner. On the SATCOM radios, we heard F-15s were airborne. They are supersonic over Long Island, New York, closing in on United Flight 93. They are five minutes out. They wanted to be confirmed, weapons free to engage. And just so your listeners understand this, supersonic at, at sea level, they're going about 1,200 miles per hour, chasing down Flight 93. And without hesitation, they were cleared hot. You are weapons free to engage. Now it we went all quiet in the bunker complex. We've got a real world military mission in progress. All of a sudden at 10.05, all the satellite radios blared to life. Aircraft down. Aircraft down. Down 68 miles south of Pittsburgh, no survivors. You could have heard a pin drop. Vice President <laughs> stared at those speaker boxes, turned right around, he came over to me, and he goes, "Major, for the congressional investigation, state your full name." I snapped too, said, "Sir, it's Major Bob Darling." He goes from the from Major Darling to the Vice President to the National Military Command Center. We just shot that plane down. I really need to talk to the president. And now they're going Air Force One, Air Force One. This is the PIOC. We're trying to bring them up on the network. When all of a sudden those same satellite radios blared back to life, the F-15s never fired. The F-15s never fired. United Flight 93 was on the ground in Shanksville, Pennsylvania when they got there. Imagine this, 40 strangers boarded that aircraft in Newark, New Jersey, on their way out to San Francisco, California, Hearing from loved ones, three planes, three targets. We're not going to Cuba. We fight or we die. Tom Burnett, Todd Beamer, 38 others, we believe literally got through that cockpit, got hands-on terrorists, but that plane ultimately rolled completely upside down and hit straight down at over 500 miles per hour in the field in Jacksonville.
0: How, how far out were our birds at the time?
1: Minutes, seconds, uh, closing in. I mean, if, to the point where we thought for about, 30, 45 seconds, we had actually shot that aircraft
0: out. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's going to be a wild scene. All right. Well, uh, Jeff, you are up
2: first today. Oh, I'm up first today. I didn't realize that. Uh, that's, and I'm, and I'm a little, I'm a little discombobulated because this is a perspective that uh, we haven't obviously had before. And it, We hear a lot about the military side of things, the the government side of things, you know, we only see in movies like that, that bunker and and things like that. Uh, And I don't and it's weird. Your book, it's it's 24 hours inside the president's bunker. And the the only thing I saw was 24. And I, I had these weird Jack Bauer moments of like everyone not knowing what's going on, except what's in that bunker. And you got all of you in that bunker, I'm just super curious because it's not like you're isolated, but you're not isolated because all you're getting an overwhelming amount of information. So what was that work working environment like? And and how do you get anything done? I mean, it's it just sounds like constant chaos.
1: You know, Jeff, it was really uh, a surreal situation, right? But uh, someone who's a former military guy yourself, former Marine yourself, you can appreciate this. It was the one time I've ever seen in the White House where the military wasn't supporting the professional staffers. Instead, there were no professional staffers in the room. It was a complete military operation. Even Dr. Rice, our national security advisor, stood behind the military members doing their job at these consoles who were answering phones, taking notes, passing information up to the vice president as quickly as possible. The most vertical chain of command you can imagine went completely horizontal, where you could have been a private and you could have spoke to the vice president directly if you had something to say. Everyone just compartmentalized and just turned to on what their roles were, their responsibilities were. And it was a time where the staffers Very few were even allowed into the bunker complex because they didn't have a role to play. And then the second thing, the the ones that got in there were just sitting back staring, watching the military members do what they're trained to do every single day. And that is focus on mission, operations, brevity, clarity, consistency, get information up the chain of command, uh, create courses of action for decision leaders as quickly as possible, and then turn to. There was no drama there was just people doing their jobs to the best of their abilities, and those in those heightened tension, high tension moments,
2: which is, which is amazing in and of itself. Because with all of the training that you do, uh, I don't, I don't know if planes flying into buildings uh, was a scenario that you had prepared for. Like, how did, you, how did you even? consider options and, and things like that when it, this is completely unprecedented and, and it, as a country you know we're just we're pretty fortunate that a lot of a lot of activity doesn't happen on our soil or I guess now soil up um, what prepared you guys t- to handle all of this? yeah
1: you know we don't pre- prepare necessarily for a specific event. You, you prepare for a, a wide array of events and how do you do that you, you get a command and control structure in place you feed them some information and and whether it's planes being you know going into buildings or you know a bomb going off downtown DC it, it really doesn't matter you, you form that command and control structure you raise situational awareness you create courses of action ultimately you make a decision the best decision you can with the time that you have available and then you start making another decision as more information comes in and then then another decision. And then that OODA loop type scenario just keeps playing on top of itself until you start moving through the crisis, whatever it is. This crisis just happened to be terrorists flying planes in the buildings, but it very easily could have been a sarin gas attack on Manhattan. And it would have been the same type command and control structure just doing the best
2: they can with the information that was coming in. And, and got with all of that information that you have, it's, it's probably invaluable invaluable with the work that you're doing now, but I know Ashley's an avid reader, so I'm not gonna, I'm going to do her the favor of, of not delving into the book and how your experience led to that. So go ahead.
3: <laughs> you're, up,
0: you're up, Ashley. So, sorry. I went to Jeff first. He happened to be on top of my screen today. There was no, uh, Malintent. so you're up
3: i totally fine with the choice made <laughs> uh, you know it was a command decision mark and i appreciate That's you
0: right <laughs> information's changing all the time here so all I, you the know, time
3: I'm, all the time yeah move and communicate um so my question um isn't necessarily about the book but it may there may be a point in the book i'm sure that um you talk uh, about you know The relief, right? So you've got this command control set up, you've got chaos at the helm, you've got trying to make sense from all these directions, all this input. And I'm curious as to when you finally got to decompress, right? So, you know, the 25th hour, the 26th hour, how were you processing all of this information? And then inevitably I, you know, of course leads you to, to Write this down to share with others, but in those moments where you finally had were relieved, you know, to take a break, what was going through your mind, and, um, you know, how were how were interactions with family and friends?
1: So Ashley, I got to tell you, it was an emotional roller coaster all day long. It wasn't like I was on for twenty four hours and I took an hour off to breathe. It, it, it really happened at some point around 11 o'clock, Dr. Rice came over to me and she goes, Major, would you mind if I borrowed your phone? I'm thinking the national security advisor is asking me if she could borrow my phone. And I'm like, yes, ma'am. And she picked up her, the phone and she called her family in Alabama and said, hey, I'm safe. I'm in the, the safest place imaginable. I'm just really busy, but tell everybody I'm fine. And as soon as she hung up and walked away, I was like, hey, you know what, I better check in too. And I got a quick phone call out to my wife to say, you're not gonna believe it, I'll tell you later, I'm good to go, really, really busy. And she's like, you know, you do what you gotta do. And then throughout the day, then I was good, you know, I got my phone call out of the way. And then throughout the day, people were talking about information, intelligence was coming in. This is Osama bin Laden, this is Al-Qaeda, these are terrorists, they're on our soil. First time we got attacked in our soil, since Pearl Harbor, you know, these, these conversations are percolating up. And they said someone in the room reminded Dr. Rice that this is a radical ideology, that this is not a conventional military that we that we normally build and train for, right? You know, go fight, go fight Russia and Europe type thing, or you know, China in the Pacific. And they said this is gonna take generations to win. You got old people who you're never gonna change your mind that just have to, to die. You got other people you're just going to have to deal with on the battlefield, and you got the young people that you hope you can get in and re-educate them to try to get them off the path of radicalization, if you will. And someone said, we have to bring back the draft. Just like that. Just threw it out there like it was something. And I remember feeling so terrible because I raised my right hand. I took an oath to defend the Constitution. I'm a volunteer military member. We have a million volunteers, and now because we let this happen, on our watch, they're going to bring back the draft. And my sons at the time were four and seven. can't believe it. They're 27 and 24 right now, but they were four and seven. And I have to go home tomorrow to tell my wife that they're going to be drafted. They will not have the same choice that Jeff and I had. when We decided to join the service and, and, you know, and, and raise our right hand. It was really just, You know, a lot of highs and lows throughout the entire day. Thank God that didn't come to fruition, but that's the day was like, just highs and lows.
3: I I can only imagine, but I it's not there's not many words. I mean just overwhelmed, overwhelmed.
1: Well, let me share with you then, Ashley and everybody else for the podcast sake, some of the other major events that really happened that were just um they altered my life. And and someone then, I think it was Mark who said, Hey, and then why you got into your your current company of turning point crisis management. This event in 9-11 and seeing the the amazing resilience of the American people, it, it was not a great moment for the US military. It was a great moment for the American people. Strangers running back into buildings, carrying complete other strangers downstairs, strangers fighting on airplanes, supporting each other at the Pentagon. You said, Wow, the depth of our democracy and our patriotism and what we would do to save a complete stranger is incredible that, you know, when called upon, we can all unite like that as a people and go do that. And now I'm I'm on a personal mission, right. To bring that resilience to every company in America. Do you you have a plan? Do you practice a plan? Do you give roles and responsibilities to every employee? Do they know what they're going to do? Are they part of the solution? or Are you dismissing them? You know, we can go on and on. But throughout the day, the other thing that happened was we had an unidentified aircraft heading toward the Pentagon. Secret Service called downstairs and we have a bogey. When we don't know what it is. We call it a bogey. If we identify him as a bad guy, he's a bandit. If he's a friendly, he's a friendly. So now Secret Service is saying we got a bogey eight miles out inbound to the White House. I turn Mr. Vice President. We got a bogey seven miles out, low and fast, inbound to the White House. He's talking to the Pentagon. They're looking for a fighter. With an AMRAM, a radar guided missile or heat seeking missile to kill this bogey, to lock on and kill him, find him, kill him. And meanwhile, you know, they're searching for the fighter jet. And we're going six, five, four, three. And he goes, stop counting. The Secret Service can't deal with it on the roof. Everyone stand by for impact. And I'm thinking, the United States just said, checkmate, the terrorists are gonna strike the White House. There's literally thousands of people outside being pushed to the south or pushed away to the north. And all of a sudden, all the loudspeakers flared to life, it's not a bogey. It was an army medevac helicopter heading with six doctors to get to the Pentagon to go save lives. They came out of Fort Belvoir to the south of Washington, D.C. When they called Reagan National Airport for permission to enter the airspace, no one answered them back because they had evac- evacuated with the flyover of Flight 77. And now they got as low and as fast as they could fly. We picked them up and thought they were a bad guy. And we were within seconds, if you will, of shooting down a Army HH-60 helicopter carrying six doctors to go save lives. It would have just demoralized the day beyond what what was already going on. It was a near miss, but it worked out for us that day. It was really an, an incredible moment. Wow.
2: So I will just, I just, I was going to just interject real quick because I wanted to make sure that uh, the Lieutenant Colonel was aware that Mark and Ashley did also raise their hand, hand albeit for the Army, but they did raise their right hand uh, almost the same as you and I.
0: Well, because we joined the Army, we actually knew our right from our left. So we were good <laughs> to go. That's
1: correct. <laughs> that is correct. Uh, yeah. I stand corrected, Mark. I apologize. I thank you for your incredible service.
0: Absolutely. We call that important <laughs> starboard. I, I don't know. I don't know if it was incredible, but it was service either way. Uh, Colonel, where, uh, where can they find your book and where else can they uh, locate you?
1: Well, you can find me at robertjdarling.com. I'm on my website. You, you know, if you need something, to, anytime you need anything me, reach out, uh, I'm available to you. They can buy the book off the website or they can find it on amazon.com. Two easy places to get it.
0: Awesome. All right, Colonel, thank you very much for joining us uh ashley jeff always great to see you of course and everyone else uh remember to subscribe to the tango alpha lima podcast on apple Podcasts, spotify youtube or wherever you listen to podcasts while you're there review and rate us if you want to send us feedback you can comment on youtube or facebook or you can send us an email at tango lima at legion.org and we will be back with another 9-11 story tomorrow so we will see you then guys thank you very much colonel thank you yeah temper
1: fine we're out here